0: From Public Radio International, this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. It's Wednesday, August 22nd. I'm Marco Werman. The United States has eased sanctions on Iran to allow Americans to send aid to earthquake victims, but U.S. banks are still reluctant.
1: One of them actually suggested to us that it's better that you find a
2: person, give him the cash, and have him fly to Iran.
0: We'll hear the details. And later, the controversy over Canada's new $100 bill.
2: Why is there such contention around a face on the back of a bill that happens to not look distinctly white?
0: Plus, Uganda scores a win at the Little League World Series and turbanology from Britain.
3: The world is made possible in part by Medtronic employees, proudly supporting the work of United Way. United Way helps build pathways out of poverty by mobilizing the caring power of communities around the world, focusing on education, health, and basic needs. Learn how to help at unitedway.org. And by PBS Learning Media, providing accessible, on-demand educational content to teachers nationwide. More information online at pbslearningmedia.org.
0: I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. For years, the United States has been ratcheting up economic sanctions on Iran and its leaders. The sanctions are a key component of American efforts to force Iran to halt its controversial nuclear program. Well, this week, the United States temporarily eased those sanctions on Iran in order to allow the flow of relief funds to the country. Northern Iran was hit by two deadly earthquakes a couple of weeks ago, but U.S. sanctions made it difficult for American relief groups to help. Now the U.S. Treasury says the non-governmental groups will be allowed to transfer up to $300,000 in quake aid to Iran Over the next 45 days, National Iranian-American Council President Trita Parsi says that's the right thing to do. But in an editorial in The Huffington Post, he says there are other obstacles that could prevent the aid from getting to the quake victims. Trita, what obstacles do you mean?
1: Well, the main obstacle that remains is the fact that the financial sanctions and the stigma that the U.S. government has created around banks dealing with Iran has led to a situation in which most banks actually simply have cut all tides with Iranian banks. It doesn't really matter if it's permissible or not. It's not worth the risk from their perspective to engage any such transactions. As a result, whereas this is now permissible for them to send money to Iran, many organizations already contacted me this morning and saying they're having difficulty finding banks that would agree to do it. We called 15 banks last week before this decision. But Uh, focusing on whether they would agree to transfer money to Iran under other pre-existing exemptions. Twelve out of 15 banks told us no, flat out. Two of them told us that there would be so many difficulties that the intended recipient in Iran would never receive the money anyways. And one of them actually suggested to us that it's better that you find a person, give him the cash, and have him fly to
0: Iran. Mm -hmm. So what consequences will this entail for uh, NGOs that want to bring money to uh, these quake victims?
1: The most likely consequence is that this decision by President Obama, which was certainly a right decision, a good decision, may be rendered inconsequential Because banks are not doing it. Mm. Now, we're hoping, talking to the banks, making sure that they agree to do this, because it is legal, they're not going to be faced with any negative consequences for it. And if they agree to do it, and they expedite it and make sure all of those things are done, then I think we will see the American people's generosity be able to flow to earthquake victims in Iran.
0: If this offer is good for the next 45 days, what would be the risks to any of those banks?
1: Well, the problem is that it's costly for them to make an assessment on a case-by-case basis as to whether this transaction is legitimate or if there could potentially be any problems with it. As a result, they've just decided to just stop all transactions because it's cheaper that way and they have no risk because if by mistake, they do something that is not permissible, they would be faced with significant fines. And as a result, it's just easier for them to say, we're not just going to do it at all, period.
0: So these uh, double quakes hit a couple of weeks ago in northern Iran. What do your sources on the ground tell you about how humanitarian help is being distributed right now?
1: Uh, It's been very difficult. The Iranian government itself is under very severe criticism, as a result of slow reaction, imprecise reaction, as well as a refusal to accept help from the outside over the first couple of days. And already, you know, mindful of the fact that there's a situation in which people are very unhappy with the regime to begin with. then when something like this happens, of course, you're going to see a lot of that frustration come out. It's been interesting to see that people inside of Iran have organized their own convoys and taken matters in their own hands instead of relying on semi-government organizations.
0: Mm. Trita Parsi is the president of the National Iranian American Council. Thank you very much for your time.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: In Israel, people have become used to the violence of the ongoing Israeli-Palestinian conflict. But two brutal attacks last week have some there worried that the country is becoming inured to hate crimes. It started with a firebombing of a Palestinian taxi driver. Hours later, a group of Israeli teenagers attacked some Palestinian teens in downtown Jerusalem. One of the Palestinians was seriously injured. So far, eight Israelis, boys and girls, have been arrested in the attack. Daniel Estrin reports from Jerusalem.
4: So you were sitting in this seat last Thursday night, and what were you? What did you see here?
5: I see the kids of the uh, Jewish follow like uh, an Arab guys till the train. I think
4: Hassan Hassanain is a 22-year-old Palestinian. He sells backgammon sets on Jerusalem's main pedestrian mall, close to where the Jerusalem Light Rail passes by. He says he heard the Israeli teens cursing the Arab teens for being Arab. What did you do when you heard all of that?
6: I ran to close my store.
5: You were, were you afraid that they would catch you? Yeah. I hear the, an ambulance. I, I don't know what happened after.
4: Here's how Jerusalem police describe what happened. Spokesman Mickey Rosenfeld says a 13-year-old Israeli girl told a group of Israeli teenagers that an Arab boy had sexually harassed her.
7: And uh, that's
8: what stemmed the tension and the height. And unfortunately...
1: Eventually, those youngsters walked around
9: town looking for someone to uh, curse, someone to uh, talk to, and eventually someone to,
1: to
3: beat up.
4: The police have asked eyewitnesses not to speak to the media while the investigation continues. But the night of the attack, one woman wrote a Facebook post saying she saw the Israeli teens throw a Palestinian teen to the ground and kick him in the head. He was rushed to the hospital unconscious. Israeli newspapers have widely condemned the attack. But some boys on the street where the attack took place told me today there's a good reason for this beating. When Palestinian boys flirt with or harass Israeli girls, it's intolerable. This teen says, I walk around here a lot. I see a lot of Arab boys flirting with Jewish girls. They have their own villages, they shouldn't come into our lives here. Another says, I'm not saying what happened was good, but... Another boy walking by interrupts him. I think what happened was excellent, he says. I'm happy they beat him up. It's too bad he didn't die, says Oren, who's almost 19. He's wearing a Real Madrid T-shirt and a white yarmulke. He's from Pisgat Ze'ev, a suburb of Jerusalem in an area Israel annexed after the 1967 war. It's near a number of Palestinian villages. He says Palestinian teens flirt with Israeli girls there. Mixed dating is taboo in Israel, especially in politically tense Jerusalem. Oren says his parents are upset that he supports the attack. And other Israeli teens, like Baruch Ehrenberg, tell me the kids who carried out the attack don't represent them.
1: They're stupid. I think they were very stupid, because why the hell are they doing this? They just go and
2: punish a boy because he's not a Jewish. It's not good.
4: Yafa Yehuda'i works in a clothing store across the street from where the attack happened. She didn't witness the violence, but she's worked here for 45 years, and she says she's seeing more and more brawls on this pedestrian mall. She says teenage violence happens everywhere in the world, and Palestinian teens have also attacked Israelis. But she says, we Jews call ourselves the chosen people. We need to be careful of how we speak and act. (laughs) Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu said this week, This is something we cannot accept, not as Jews, not as Israelis. This is not our way. He said Israel would bring the culprits to justice. Israel's education ministry says it's going to use the attack as a teaching opportunity. When school goes back in session next week, teachers will be talking to students about what happened here last Thursday night. For The World, I'm Daniel Estrin in Jerusalem.
0: On Monday night, a freight train derailment near Baltimore claimed the lives of two young college friends. They were hanging out on a railroad bridge when the accident occurred. The incident also damaged fiber optic lines serving the U.S. military base at Guantanamo Bay in Cuba. That forced a one-day delay in the pretrial hearings for the five men charged in the September 11th attacks. Today, those hearings were postponed until further notice due to the approach of Tropical Storm Isaac. Strange how a train accident, though, in Maryland could have such an impact in Cuba, right? Well, it turns out all Internet service into and out of Guantanamo is handled by satellite, and those satellites connect to the rest of the U.S. via downlink locations in Maine and Maryland. Tim Strong is a market research analyst with the firm Telegeography. Uh, Tim, help us understand how it is that one severed cable could have such a big impact on Guantanamo.
10: Well, unfortunately, we don't have a lot of details on how the U.S. military network is run. Uh, It's a little surprising that one severed fiber optic link could so disrupt communications to Guantanamo Bay. However, one thing to keep in mind is that these fiber breaks happen all the time. We just generally don't hear about them.
0: Right. And we should point out that uh, there is no U.S. connection to Cuba communications-wise with fiber optic. It's just to Guantanamo. But as soon as I heard the story, I scratched my head because didn't the Defense Department uh, create the World Wide Web precisely uh, with the ability to maintain seamless communications if one link of the web broke down? Now we're hearing that the Pentagon is a Verizon subscriber, just like all of us. What's up with that?
10: Well, the U.S. government is a subscriber to many private enterprises. They also supply their own networks in some cases, but often it's cheaper and more efficient for the U.S. government to spend their money leasing capacity from existing carrier networks such as Verizon.
0: So how much of our fiber optic system runs along rail lines uh, like this one in Maryland? I mean, you say accidents like this happen all the time, but really with Internet outages?
10: Fiber optic uh, cables break a lot. Most of the internet runs on fiber optic cables. It's great because it's cheap and it's very fast compared to satellite, but it's physically susceptible to damage. Often they're buried only a few feet underneath the ground. And if a backhoe tears through a cable, which is fairly common, it will break. The reason you don't hear about it very frequently is that there are many different links that connect different cities. So generally, if one link breaks, other links can be used to handle communications What we don't know is why there is only one major link connecting the Maryland satellite Earth station to the rest of the Internet.
0: I mean, Guantanamo is a small isolated segment under U.S. control of Cuba proper, the island. What sort of Internet connectivity does the rest of the island have? Could a train derailment in Baltimore wreak havoc on their email, for example?
10: No, the uh, raider citizens of Cuba do not use the U.S. government satellite capacity from Guantanamo. Uh, They use other satellite capacity, and there's also a submarine cable that that connects Cuba's friend Venezuela to Cuba. There's been a lot of controversy about that cable, however, in the last year. It was supposedly completed one or two years ago, but the citizens of Cuba really haven't enjoyed access to it.
0: I'm told that uh, there's work on a new fiber optic line to Guantanamo, but it's still in the planning stages. Would a new line solve the problems of outages entirely?
10: Not necessarily. You would still need what they call backhaul from the cable landing station to the rest of the Internet. Uh, this cable, I believe, would connect the U.S. military base in Cuba to southern Florida via an undersea fiber optic link. But from there, the U.S. government would need to build a procure capacity to the rest of the U.S. Internet.
0: Analyst Tim Strong of Telegeography walking us through how a train derailment in Maryland this week impacted Internet access at the U.S. military base at Guantanamo Bay in Cuba. Tim, thank you.
10: Thanks very much, Marco.
0: Still to come, where in the world is Serendip on PRI?
3: The World is brought to you by PRI with help from the Medtronic Foundation, supporting the work of Partners in Health, an organization dedicated to bringing quality health care to the world's poorest people and communities. Learn how to help at PIH.org.
0: I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World. Japanese Prime Minister Yoshihiko Noda met with anti-nuclear activists and business leaders today in Tokyo. The meetings come as Noda's government is struggling to put together a post-Fukushima energy plan for Japan. The goal is to balance the country's economic needs with the widespread anti-nuclear sentiment following the 2011 tsunami and nuclear disaster at the Fukushima power plant. Since then, Japan has committed to big increases in renewable power. The big question now is whether the government's plan will also call for phasing out nuclear power, and if so, how quickly. Meanwhile, residents of the region affected by the Fukushima disaster are coming to their own conclusions. One of them is a former executive at TEPCO, the company that owns a Fukushima plant. His name is Eiju Hangai, and he recently spoke with a TV producer and a colleague of mine, Emily Taguchi. Emily and I worked together when I reported from Japan following the 2011 tsunami. This summer, Emily spent the better part of two months on a reporting project in the region, and she's with us now. Emily, tell us about this former TEPCO executive. I understand his life has taken a big turn since March of uh, 2011.
11: Yeah, it certainly has. He is someone who worked at TEPCO for more than 30 years and had left the company shortly before the earthquake struck. And uh, about a week after the earthquake, he just started making trips back to Fukushima so that he could deliver supplies. And he met a woman at a shelter there who said, you know, this is great that you're doing this, but can't you do something that's more long-term, that's for the kids, that's going to create jobs? And so he's going to start a solar power company, and part of it's going to be dedicated to showing kids what it's like to work at a renewable power plant. Mm.
0: So that's one man whose attitudes have clearly changed. What What are the broader prospects for solar and other renewable power sources getting big in this part of Japan? Are residents there embracing renewables now?
11: If solar has a chance at any time in Japanese history, it is now. Part of uh, what Prime Minister Khan did before he left office was to put a system of incentives in place where renewable energy producers can produce electricity and have a certain price that's guaranteed that they can sell. Um, At the same time, some of these towns that were ravaged by the tsunami are really looking at renewables very seriously as a way forward because of, A, their experience with radiation, but also it's a way to put these farmlands that were devastated by the seawater and can no longer produce back into a productive place by have it be a solar power plant.
0: Wow. Now, you've been taking a close look as well at just what went wrong on March eleventh, two 2011, and why the reactors at Fukushima were so vulnerable to the earthquake and tsunami that day. Mm-hmm. It's getting clearer with each passing month that part of the problem was a very cozy relationship between the Japanese government and officials at TEPCO, the utility.
11: Yeah, that's right. So that collusion that you're talking about, uh, we call it the nuclear village, And at the very top, it's a relationship where the utilities were making financial contributions to the politicians. And in turn, government officials kind of at the end of their careers would get these high level jobs at the utilities and also kind of at the village level. It's really the utilities that built them stadiums and parks and other kinds of infrastructure. And by some estimates, a third to half of the jobs in the village depended on the nuclear power plant being there. And so there was very much a cozy relationship, as you say. And there's been a slew of reports recently in the Japanese press about just how uh, the working conditions were even made more dangerous by the workers themselves who try to shield their radiation monitor so that they can stay on the job longer.
0: Now, one of the stories you're working on is about two men who are on that cleanup crew inside the Fukushima plant. They're healthy. They're strong guys. I met one of them. Why are they willing to work under such hazardous conditions?
11: You know, at the end of the day, it's where they're from it's where they went to school it's where they got married and had kids a lot of their families and friends have left and they just feel like it's up to them to fix the situation it's not going to be an outsider that finds a solution so one of the guys um that i'm following the one that you met last year actually talked to me about you know he's going to stay at the plant for as long as he can until he reaches the upper limit of radiation And then after that, he wants to get involved in the decontamination work that's going on in his village.
0: Right. And uh, being exposed to that every day, how's his health?
11: He's 26 years old. He's so far in good health. It's not that he doesn't worry about his health. There's no way around that health concern. But at the same time, he just wakes up every day with a sense of mission that this is what he has to do.
0: Finally, Emily, one of the most emotional moments you and I spent in the Fukushima area after the disaster was in the village of Itate, just to the north of the power plant. And the morning we went there, uh, the village was preparing for a full-scale forced evacuation because of spiked radiation levels. You've been back to the village now, a year and a couple months later. Uh, It's a ghost town, Mm -hmm. but there is one woman who's still there. Tell us about her.
11: That's right. Her name is Mari Kobayashi. She used to run a small farm with chickens and organic fruits and vegetables there. And she's made the decision that it's still her home. It's the house where actually um, her late husband spent his last days and that she'd rather just coexist with radiation. She even has a little nickname for cesium. She calls it cesium And it's kind of like a little character that she lives with, basically. And uh, I'd say, you know, i visited a number of other villages that's been evacuated, and it was just visibly really striking that they've just gone back to nature. You know, Marco, you saw it as well. Fukushima, I think, is a very green and lush place to begin with. It's full of rice paddies and peach farms. And now these little towns you what you see are grass insects cows roaming around and other wildlife and an occasional skeleton of a house that used to be somebody's home before the waves swept everything away
0: journalist emily taguchi who's recently returned from a lengthy reporting trip to the region around japan's damaged fukushima nuclear power plant emily thank you so much thank you You can find more of our ongoing coverage of Fukushima, including our reporting from inside the exclusion zone and remarkable video Emily Taguchi shot during my trip with her. That's all at theworld.org. Just a quick little sports update for you now. I recently interviewed some members of the team representing Uganda at this year's Little League World Series in Pennsylvania. It's the first time Africa has been represented at the annual event. I asked Ronald, the third baseman, what he thought was the hardest baseball skill to learn.
11: Catching ground balls was pretty hard, so it was challenging, but as time came by, yeah, I got used to catching ground balls.
0: That dedication to practice and fundamentals paid off for the Ugandan team. After losing its first two games, Uganda beat a team from Oregon yesterday in a consolation game. It was a nail biter, Uganda won three to two, and Ronald scored the winning run. Despite not advancing to the finals, the Ugandan team was a tournament favorite. The players and manager alike have been hounded for autographs. I'm thankful we could come here, said Ugandan manager Henry Odong. This win was so great. I'm Marco Werman. Ahead on the world, controversy over the
6: face on Canada's $100 bill... And later, why Sikhs value their turbans in all their styles. A turban's a very personal thing for a Sikh, and you might develop your own style through months and months of practice, or as I have through years of wearing one to school and finding what suits best for you.
3: PRI's The World is made possible in part by Medtronic employees, proudly supporting the work of United Way. United Way helps build pathways out of poverty by mobilizing the caring power of communities around the world, focusing on education, health, and basic needs. Learn how to help at
0: unitedway.org. I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC, World Service, PRI, and WGBH in Boston. A few months ago, news surfaced that Anne Frank had been posthumously baptized by a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The Mormon Church quickly apologized, but it wasn't the first time Anne Frank had been baptized by a Mormon, and it wasn't the only instance of Mormon baptisms of Jewish Holocaust victims. Many of the names apparently came from archives in Poland. Reporter Jamie York has a story from Warsaw. For Mormons, posthumous baptism is a religious
8: responsibility. A living Mormon serves as a stand-in to baptize those who weren't Mormons in their lifetime so they can join in an afterlife. All you need are names of the dead. By the early 1960s, the Mormon Church had developed a reputation for its interest in archives with voluminous lists of names. That's something Poland had, but it didn't have a lot of money to take care of its records. So in 1968, the Poles approached the Mormons for help. Wladyslaw Stepniak is general director of the Polish State Archives in Warsaw. It was an agreement in which our friends from Utah are paying, providing us with equipment and materials used during the process of microfilming. The Mormons gave Poland cash and equipment to modernize its archives. They also paid to have locals put hundreds of thousands of primary documents onto microfilm. And the Mormons got their own copy. In fact, Stepniak says the Utah microfilms are so complete that he planned to ask the Mormons to fill in the gaps he discovered in his own archives.
9: We will ask our friends in Utah, dear friends, be so kind, send
8: us scans of these microfilms. Some of those microfilms include the names of Jews who died in the Holocaust and quite a few of them have been baptized by the Mormons. When a person lived as a Jew and was murdered as a Jew during the Holocaust, to try to change their religion after the fact seems particularly inappropriate, distasteful, wrong. Michael Shudrich is the chief rabbi of Poland. He's a New Yorker who was invited 18 years ago to lead and help revive the small Jewish community in Warsaw. He's troubled by the Mormon baptisms. When I asked Ladislas Stepniak how he responds to that concern, he was a little vague.
9: What does it mean for the souls of people? Do Jews agree on this baptization after the death? This is a question of religion.
8: Religious people always disagree, he seems to be saying. Who is he to mediate issues of religion? Rabbi Shudrich would be the logical one to press this case, but he says he has his hands full. He's trying to rebuild a Jewish community in Warsaw that barely survived. He says the baptisms are low on his list of priorities. We, being a small Jewish community, looked to the American Jewish community as taking care of that issue. Stop this practice of the Mormons. Gary Makatov is that American. He specialized in Jewish genealogy for 35 years. In 1994, he was using the Mormons' International Genealogical Index, or IGI, to do research for a client. Makatov stumbled on a group of typically Jewish names. The IGI noted that they'd been posthumously baptized. He alerted his friends in the church, and he says they blew him off. Before too long, though, other Jewish researchers began to notice as well.
9: I started getting phone calls from Jewish genealogical societies in the United States saying, I found relatives in the IGI. Well, we traced the source, and the source was a book called the Gedenkbuch, or Memorial Book, to 128,000 German Jews murdered in the Holocaust. And what the church had done is gotten a copy of the book and posthumously baptized every person that was in the book. And I realized we had a crisis in our hands.
8: Makatov and a journalist broke the story in 1995, and the Mormon church apologized. Church leaders promised they would put a stop to the posthumous baptisms of Jews. But every few years, new stories emerged. In a written statement, the Mormon church reiterated that it is, quote, absolutely firm in its commitment, unquote, to not accept names of Holocaust victims for baptism. Makatov says he expects the church will ultimately honor that commitment. He calls it a disagreement among friends. After all, he finds the Mormon archives indispensable in his work.
9: But the best way to put it is I will not give up the souls of my ancestors for a piece of microfilm. (inaudible) Polacy and Żydzi mieszkali przez wiele lat na tej same ziemi, w tej samym kraju,
8: at the Jewish Historical Institute of Poland in Warsaw, a film loop reminds visitors about the 3.5 million Jews who lived here before World War II. Yale Reisner is another native New Yorker and now director of the Institute's genealogy project.
9: There are people still who discover through us live relatives when they thought everyone was dead. Father and son, mother and daughter. Reunion 60 years on. You can't help being moved by that. They are just so happy to have someone again because they all thought they were alone in the world. The Mormon
8: database helps them make those connections. Reisner understands the religious reasons the Mormons gathered the names of his ancestors and why many Jews find posthumous baptism offensive. He too hopes the Mormons will learn to effectively police themselves. But he recognizes that they've created a resource that he simply couldn't do without. And for Reisner, working for a Jewish community here that was almost wiped out, That's simply invaluable. For The World, I'm Jamie York, Warsaw.
0: For today's GeoQuiz, we're looking for the geographic origin of the word serendipity. It comes from the old Persian name of a South Asian island. That name was Serendip. An 18th century British writer, Horace Walpole, coined the word serendipity after reading a fairy tale called The Three Princes of Serendip. The heroes of the story, the Three Princes, were always making unexpected discoveries. The prince's island home is today an independent country in the northern Indian Ocean. It's known as a source of tea and cinnamon. It was once part of the ancient Silk Road. And for centuries, it's been an important center for Buddhism in South Asia. So do you know the modern day name for the island of Serendip? We'll go there to hear about a serendipitous scientific development, and we'll have the answer to the quiz in a few minutes. U.S. has Benjamin Franklin on its $100 bill. Canada has a fictional scientist who appears not to be Asian. And for that, Bank of Canada Governor Mark Carney apologized this week. Okay, that's a bit of a simplification. You see, there's been an uproar in Canada over the design of the $100 bill that went public last year. That's because it's emerged that the bill's original design featured the likeness of an Asian woman. But after the image was reviewed by focus groups, it was changed to portray a supposedly ethnic-neutral person. Except many critics say the female scientist on the bill now looks essentially Caucasian, like all the other people portrayed on Canadian banknotes. Raymond Hyma is with the Center of Excellence for Research on Immigration and Settlement in Toronto. He says different people are upset by the controversy for different reasons.
2: Uh, some people see this as a typical uh, Canadian over-politically correct response to something that had happened over a process. There are other other questions about our Canadian $100 bill being a yellowish-brown color and associated it with uh, racialization. And others see this as a blow to not just Asian Canadians, but to all ethnicities in Canada that might uh, take offense to being excluded from being on a bill.
0: Now, I saw an image on a, a News Canada website. The woman now looking into the microscope looks ethnic neutral. Who in Canada did see the original change note?
2: Well, unfortunately, the Bank of Canada hasn't released the original image of the scientist, of the prototype. They've let us know through an apology on Monday that the uh, image composite was of a South Asian woman. But until now, it's been the focus groups and internally at the Bank of Canada being able to see the image itself.
0: Fair to say that the tone of the debate so far in Canada over this uh, has been pretty divisive. Mm -hmm. Do you think it's part of a bigger national conversation for Canada on on race that has to happen
2: well definitely i think that you know the issue is not simply about the bank of canada's decision to change the banknote but it's really asking why a supposedly neutral composite of a face is considered a caucasian default by a public institution and even more so why is there such contention around a face on the back of a bill that happens to not look distinctly white
0: there's a long history of asians in canada is there a backstory here that we should know about you know is there a history recent or otherwise of racism against
2: asians Well, um, Canada has a history of discrimination against minorities like any other country. Uh, It has periods of both overt and silent racism towards minorities. Most Canadians know that the Canadian Pacific Railway system that links our country from coast to coast was built on the backs of Chinese laborers once they completed their usefulness laying down these tracks around 1885. Mm. They were singled out in the immigration system to pay a head tax to come to Canada.
0: So what do you think this ultimately says about how Canada, as opposed to other countries, deals with these issues?
2: I think in Canada here, for example, in comparison to the American concept of a melting pot where people from all over the world come and adapt to an American culture, uh, here since the 1970s under policies by then-Minister Trudeau, Canada has historically treated itself as a multicultural mosaic. So in essence, if you were to see the nation as, as a quilt of fabrics that comes together but stays different, many Canadians see themselves as keeping other cultural traits and living and even thriving in a society of difference. So the the fact that there are are many Canadians who would take offense to actually removing an image because it's identified as non-white is an issue that we're dealing with.
0: Raymond Haima with Canada's Centre of Excellence for Research on Immigration and Settlement. He's speaking with us from Toronto. Thank you for your time.
2: Thanks for having me.
0: About a quarter of all people worldwide live without electricity. For them, evenings and nights are spent by candlelight or kerosene lamp. But some scientists in Sri Lanka say they found a way to bring simple electric lighting to rural people in that part of the world. It begins with a homegrown battery. The world's Ritu Chatterjee explains.
7: K. D. Jayasuriya is a physicist at the University of Kelaniya in Sri Lanka. Just a few blocks from his laboratory stands a small patch of trees.
11: These are the plantain trees.
7: The plantain trees are heavy with fruit. He shows me bunches of green, unripened plantains hanging down from the branches. Plantains are a popular food here in Sri Lanka. And most people grow the fruit in their own yards, especially in rural areas. These are also places with little or no access to electricity. Back in his office, Jayasure explains that about a year ago, he and his colleagues got an idea. Could they use plantain trees to make batteries for Sri Lanka's rural poor?
9: If we can produce a cell with freely available raw material, which is biodegradable, then they can use that to light their houses, so that adds value to their life.
7: The idea of using plant material to make battery cells isn't exactly new. Potato-powered batteries are a common science experiment in American schools. The potato contains an acid that reacts with metal electrodes, causing electrons to flow and generating an electric current. Several years ago, Israeli scientists found a way to boost the power of potato batteries so that they could be used to run light bulbs and other simple household devices. But potatoes aren't cheap in Sri Lanka. So Jay and his team wanted to see if they could use plantain trees as the raw material. You see, once the fruit is harvested, the rest of the tree becomes waste. So there's plenty of material available all over Sri Lanka. Nandan Jeshantha is a student on Jaisuria's team. He demonstrates how to make the battery. He takes a piece of plantain trunk and tears off the outer layers to get to the central most part. Jaisanta says after extracting the core, he boils it, then chops it finely till it turns into a soft, mushy material. He takes some of that material and stuffs it between two rectangular pieces of metal, held in place by bright yellow electrical tape. The two pieces of metal, he tells me, are the battery's electrodes. We use
6: copper and zinc electrodes.
7: The electrodes react with phosphoric acid from the plantain tree, creating an electric current. The electrical output of each battery is tiny, just seven-tenths of a volt. But when he places four of these cells in a row and connects them, the output is enough to light up a big LED. Positive of these comes to the positive side of the bulb, then negative side of the last cell is connected to the negative terminal of the bulb. And tada! you have the bulb light up. It <laughs> is lighting. The team still has a long way to go before people in rural communities can use these batteries to light up their homes but their aim is to create something that rural consumers can make with a small investment in equipment. Ruan Vijasundara is also a physicist at the University of Kelania and a collaborator on this project. He says one advantage of the technology is that a single cell can last a long time. Once you make a cell, you can use it uh, for about 10 days, continuous writing. And an average tree has enough material for 30 to 40 such cells. That means the waste of one plantain tree could someday light a bulb for a whole year. For The World, I'm Ritu Chatterjee, Kelania Sri Lanka.
0: Just how do you make a battery from the trunk of a plantain tree? We've got a video demonstration and pictures from Sri Lanka at theworld.org. By the way, do you know the old Persian name for Sri Lanka? It was Serendip, S-E-R-E-N-D-I-P, just like serendipity the ITY, which makes Sri Lanka the answer to our geo-quiz today. This is PRI.
3: The world is brought to you by PRI with support from PBS Learning Media, providing accessible, on-demand educational content to teachers nationwide. Thousands of resources at your fingertips from PBS Learning Media. More information online at pbslearningmedia.org. And by the investment firm of Raymond James, Wealth Management, Bank and Capital Markets. Details on finding a local advisor at lifewellplanned.com.
0: I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. First Lady Michelle Obama travels to Wisconsin tomorrow. She's scheduled to meet with relatives of victims of the August 5th shooting at a Sikh temple there. Six people were killed in the rampage before the gunman, an army veteran with links to racist groups, killed himself. The shooting shocked the nation. It also sent many Americans to online encyclopedias to answer some basic questions. Who are the Sikhs? What do they believe in? And what's the significance of their most obvious physical accessory, the turban? For that last question, here's an answer from Britain, where Sikhs are more established than in the U.S. The world's Patrick Cox tells
5: us about turbanology. To non-seeks, a turban is a little bit of a riddle wrapped in a mystery. Well, the point of turbanology is to unwrap that riddle. This video, part of an exhibit touring the UK and online, shows a 14-year-old boy binding his long hair and then wrapping it all in a turban, confidently, expertly, but slow enough for non-experts to figure out how it's done. After I'd seen that, I understood the basic technique. There are many variations, more on that later. But understanding why the turban is such a potent symbol of Sikh culture required a trip to the Handsworth section of Birmingham, home to thousands of British Sikhs, including Gurinder Singh Mandla.
9: We are ordered to wear a turban to show respect to God, to have our head covered when we're in the presence of God. And as we feel that God is omnipresent and we're always in the presence of God, we must always have our head covered as a sign of respect and deference. Even at night? Once I go to bed, I will tie a smaller turban because it's still supposed to be covered. I think the only time my head is not covered is when I'm having a bath or a shower.
5: Now, Sikh men and a few women have been wearing turbans for centuries. In South Asia, the turban is often a symbol of royalty. And so to Sikhs, the turban is a crown. Those who wear it are princes on earth, soldiers too, who fight injustice. But when Sikhs began establishing themselves in Britain in the 1950s and 60s, wearing a turban
9: was socially unacceptable. There were sacrifices made because there were no jobs available to those people who looked so distinctly different. And so as a consequence of that, many Sikhs unfortunately disregarded their requirement to wear a turban and cut their hair so that they could gain employment.
5: It may not come as a surprise to learn that Gurinder Singh Mandla, with his careful choice of words, is a lawyer. That's how he's known now. But it's not how he
9: made his name. My case came about as a 12-year-old in 1977 when I uh, wanted to go to a school in Birmingham.
5: Mandla had passed an exam to get into this private school. His father, Sewa Singh Mandala, then met with the headmaster. The older Mandala told the headmaster he was concerned that the other boys would tease his son for wearing a turban. Then he said,
9: well, well, you know, the rules of my school say that every child here has got to wear a cap. Wear a cap and keep his hair short.
5: Mandla said that cutting his hair and not wearing a turban would be against his son's faith. He reminded the headmaster that wearing a turban was accepted in the British military, but it didn't help. The boy was denied a place at the school, and so the Mandla family sued. Under British law, they had to prove that Sikhs were a distinct ethnic group.
9: And to show that you're an ethnic group, you had to show that you have an identity. You have your own language. I mean, I adduced witnesses to say that we have our own script, Punjabi script. The Mandlers lost the case
5: in lower court and then again on appeal. But as the case continued working its way through the legal system, it was energising Britain's Sikhs. The refusal of one school to admit a boy wearing a turban was snowballing into something that became known as the Turban Rights Movement. Finally, in the House of Lords, the Mandlers prevailed.
6: I was born in 1983, which coincidentally was the year that the Turban Rights case was settled. This is Jay Singh Sohol, director of the Turbanology Project. And what that did, for, it, particularly for me being born in that year, was it allowed Sikhs to grow up without any kind of fear or pressure upon them to conform by cutting their hair or try to fit in. And it gave a protection to young Sikhs, certainly to myself, to be able to grow up and feel comfortable within our own skin and maintaining our own identity.
5: The days when Sikhs in Britain felt discriminated against may be over, but many are still choosing not to wear a turban in Britain and even in India. The usual reason given is that turbans are old-fashioned, But for Sikhs in the U.S., Sohol says it may be different. It's not just the Wisconsin temple shootings where Sikhs have been the target of violence.
6: It's very unfortunate uh, that in the States there have been people killed because of their turbans. Uh, Sikhs who've been perceived to be Muslims, people who who don't necessarily understand what the turban represents. They see an image of bin Laden or the Taliban and and they've attacked uh, the Sikhs. And and more often than not, um, they've been elderly Sikhs as well.
5: It's this confusion over what the turban represents that made Sohal realize there was a need for turbanology, and he decided the best way to start unpacking the meaning of the turban was with the thing itself, a piece of cloth that can be up to 26 feet
6: long. There is no right or wrong way of tying a turban. A turban is a very personal thing for a Sikh and you might develop your own style through months and months of practice or as I have through years of, of wearing one to school and, and finding what suits best for you. Which can mean different
5: colours, orange, indigo and burgundy or pleated or knotted or tied in certain ways. Just our schoolboy turned lawyer Gurinder Singh Mandla.
9: The style that I wear which is folded with a number of pleats I would like to think it's a smarter version compared with somebody from India who may have a much larger turban. Going back to the 50s and 60s, you could identify a Sikh from which part of the world he came. A turban such as mine, you could say that a Sikh is from East Africa. You can recognize somebody who's been in the Indian army for the way he ties his turban because that is a distinctive style. That's not to be confused with turbans worn by some Muslims. The Islamic style is totally different because usually the top part of their head is not covered and they have a long trail... Hanging on the back. But there are variations and differences. I
1: represent the Punjabi for life, ninja for the so we fight and die.
9: There's undoubtedly something of a cultural
5: battle taking place over the next generation of Sikh men. Will turban wearing continue to decline? Or will ideas like turbanology and musicians like these ones, two brothers from Glasgow who call themselves Tiger Style will they help make connections for younger Sikhs so that the act of wearing a turban remains the most visible expression of the Sikh faith for the world and Patrick
4: Cox.
0: The music of Tiger Style ends our program. You can see one of their videos and that video on how to tie a turban at theworld.org. From the Nan and Bill Harris studios at WGBH, I'm Marco Werman. Thank you for being with
7: us today.
3: The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH, supported by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, dedicated to the idea that all people deserve the chance to live healthy, productive lives. GatesFoundation.org the Luce Foundation's Henry R. Luce Initiative on Religion and International Affairs, by the Skoll Foundation, supporting social entrepreneurs and their innovations to solve the world's most pressing problems at skoll.org, and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, committed to building a more just, verdant, and peaceful world, macfound.org.
2: PRI Public Radio International.